Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebod, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. According to the 19th century writer John Ruskin, he quoted, the measure of any great civilization is its cities, and the measure of a city's greatness is to be found in the quality of its public spaces, its parkland, and squares. Today, I will be speaking with Meg Daly and Isabel Castilla about the role of contemporary public space in America. High-quality public space is vital for the social life of a community, the economic competitiveness and environmental performance of a city, and the overall health and well-being of its population. Yet despite these virtues, the development of public space in America is increasingly challenged due to the surge of privatization and the rise of land costs in urban centers throughout the country. Meg and Isabel will share the success story of the Underline Project, a new 10-mile linear park that is transforming the land below Miami's elevated metro rail into a linear park, urban trail, and public art destination. When complete, this project is going to provide 120 acres of new public space for the city, radically transforming the citizens' relationship to nature, transportation, and recreation. But before we begin the conversation, I would like to introduce my guests. Meg Daly is the founder and president of Friends of the Underline, a nonprofit organization that is leading the initiative of the Underline Project in America, in Miami. Meg is a 30-year sales and marketing veteran. She owned First Media Direct, a breakthrough target marketing company catering to the broadcast television industry. She's also held executive marketing and management positions in the public relations, advertising, technology, and real estate industries. Meg has a BA in English from Vanderbilt University and serves on numerous philanthropic boards. She's the chairperson of the Coral Gables Cultural Affairs Board and a member of Bike 305 Executive Committee. For her love of community and her desire to serve others, Meg was recently named one of Miami's angels by the Miami Herald. I'm also joined by Isabel Castilla, who is the principal at James Corner Field Operations, a leading edge urban design, landscape architecture, and public realm practice based in New York City. Isabel is principal in charge for the Underline Project in Miami, as well as the High Line and Moynihan Correct Connector, a walkway that will connect New York's High Line at 30th Street to Moynihan Train Hall. She's also leading the public realm design for 175 Park Avenue in Manhattan, a project that will breathe new life into one of the most complex and underutilized sites in the city next to Grand Central Terminal. Isabel holds a Master's of Landscape Architecture and a Master's of Architecture degree from the University of Pennsylvania School of Design, where she was awarded a Faculty Medal for Excellence and the E. Lewis Dales Traveling Fellowship. She holds a Bachelor of Architecture degree from the University of Puerto Rico. In addition to her wonderful work at field operations, Isabel has lectured at universities and symposiums across the United States. Welcome to On City, Meg and Isabel. I'm so delighted to be speaking with both of you today. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So, 
So I'm going to start with you, Meg. I heard that the idea for the Underline Project came about in a rather unusual way. Can you share the story with us? Yeah, th this whole project is um, because of an accident. <laughs> so it was accidentally, you know, good news. Um, about a decade ago, I had a bike accident and broke both of my arms. Um, as I landed, I ended up in a perfect plank, uh, which broke both of my elbows. And, um, and, and, and I had no experience in the public realm. I was doing that marketing thing that you were talking about when you did the introductions. And, but I have, you know, had the a love and passion for parks for so many years. And I think they are the heartbeat of a, and the green soul of a city. And I was forced to walk a lot uh, because I had broken arms. I couldn't drive um, and ended up walking below Metro Rail, which is our um, elevated heavy rail in Miami uh, to get to physical therapy. And in that walk and slowing down and not driving, um, I had this moment to think, wow, why don't we turn all this space below Metro Rail into a park and return it to the community? And I, I call it my crazy idea and um, shopped it a few times and it just it just sort of caught on like wildfire. People thought it was crazy, but they they joined in the movement that we created about, you know, building parks and trails uh, throughout Miami-Dade County. And this is a large gesture in that direction. Well, I'm sad that it would have to have happened due to an accident, but it was fortuitous because I think um, we don't understand how to walk a city unless we actually do so. Uh, so I think the experience of getting out of the car and actually physically walking through a city who up until recently really hasn't um, centered on the experience of the pedestrian, really, um, I think was vital in you changing your perspective on things. And I'm certainly one that is grateful for that. Um, now, really, the underlying I guess, uh, nearly a decade after its inception has become a true labor of love for you, Meg. And this project could not have happened without you and your family's deep commitment to Miami. Your father, Parker Thompson, was a prominent lawyer in the city, and he played a pivotal role in the development of key public projects in Miami. What were the greatest lessons that you learned from watching him work? I mean, that's a great question. Um, and and I think that it's not just my father, it's my mom. Uh, I come from a very large family and I don't know if it was just to keep us busy and not annoying them. Um, they always had some sort of um, project uh, from saving the now historic Biltmore Hotel um, to saving roads and, 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 and making sure that they aren't widened because of trees. And since we were free labor, we are always getting petitions signed. So I think that we were activists in training when we were very young. Um, my my father um, was an is an was an attorney by trade. Uh, my mom was a stay home but never at home uh, mom. And 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 I think that watching them really sort of baked all, all of my siblings and me um, is thinking that we could we could invoke change uh, as one person. Um, so my dad was responsible for the performing arts center here. Hard to believe that. Uh, Miami had one after much smaller cities in, in Florida. Um, it was a slog to get that project done. Um, he was very committed uh, to honoring the design, which was articulated by Cesar Pelli. And so, you know, in the realm of value engineering, he really fought hard for delivering on that design vision. And, and that's one of the things I learned from him is never give up on the vision 
Um, he also had this calculus of knowing what mattered and didn't get lost in noise, uh, which I think also speaks to vision uh, because these big projects, you can just have a lot of people could be negative and he didn't let it get in the way of getting it done. Um, he also never expected anything in return. Um, and I've been a volunteer now for a decade uh, leading the project. And, and if you and if you and if you show up for these projects, you know, hoping to get something back, you're probably starting from the wrong place. And the last thing he always taught me is if it's easy, it's not worth it. Um, so it's not easy. And most days it's really worth it. Um, so those are all good lessons that um, learned. Yeah. And I think it uh, like any project particularly your projects for building the city. And certainly in the case of building public space, which we're talking about today, they are not immediate. Um, they take, uh, as you've pointed out, a decade. Uh, but if you do them well, hopefully they will allow uh, future generations to benefit from the effort. So I think those are all important lessons for us to take with us. Now, Meg, Isabel is going to be um, speaking to us uh, directly about the physical designs of the underlying project. Um, so maybe from you, I would love to hear a little bit more about the invisible networks and connections that are necessary to uh, bring projects to life, um, like the underlying. So what opportunities did you tap into and what can we learn from your experience? Let me just start with the project is $140 million. And so if if you start with, I have to raise $140 million, a lot of people would say that's impossible. Um, and so one of the things I've learned is have a lot of balls in the air at the same time. So you're not just doing one thing, which then I think takes me to the complexity of the project. We have federal, state, county, and municipal funding. Um, and some funding is earmarked for transportation, some is for parks, some is private, so it's for a specific place. Um, but the thing is, if you have a lot of things going on at the same time, one ball may drop, but other things do come through. Um, so I, I do think the the, uh, the other notion is this public-private. So we, as the nonprofit, you know, really focus on uh, non-county funding. Um, our partner is Miami-Dade County. So the nonprofit was able to raise 50% of the construction funding from non-county um, sources, which includes the federal, state, and municipal, um, and, and also the philanthropic dollars. Mm -hmm. I want to remind everybody that the first dollar is the toughest, and so catalytic, catalytic investment really is what sort of snowballs. And there were a couple of uh, larger grants that after you know that first million in, uh, one was a federal grant uh, for 25 million, which was written at my dining room table without a consultant, which is unheard of. Um, and then the other was a grant from the city of Miami, which is very unusual to get grant dollars from, a, from Miami for technically um, a county project. So everything is an opportunity. Everything's on the table. And I would just strongly encourage people to not take no as your first answer. Um, think creatively and bring an entrepreneurial spirit to um, this public-private realm. And I think that that's what we do. 
Yeah, well, I also would underscore that because of your longstanding ties to the community and yours and your family's work, I think you've built relationships across time. And I think you're what Malcolm Gladwell will call the consummate connector. Um, but you also bring with you a great um, level of enthusiasm. And I don't think enthusiasm can be underestimated when producing projects of great vision. So um, I think, I think, I think without that, probably all of the other dollars that you spoke about would have been impossible, but um, I'm sure we, we could talk. So Sorry. Hearing, I just have to add one more thing. Cause I'm looking at you <laughs> in the university of Miami has been a wonderful partner. So there's also been great in-kind contribution, um, not just the volunteers that have contributed close to $15 million, but in-kind services. So the school of architecture at UM did a, you know, a visioning study, which informed the next, you know, so the professional um, team, which which is obviously field operations. And so, you know, without those partnerships, you know, a lot of this just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Well, the Friends of the Underline held a design competition early on and ultimately selected the New York-based firm of field operations to design the project. And Isabel, you are the principal in charge of the project. Maybe before we get into the specifics of the underline, I would love to know what you consider to be the key elements of great public space. That's a great question, Carrie, and thank you for asking that because I think over the course of my career, the more and more I um, work on challenging projects like the underline, the more and more my love for public spaces grows. And I think ultimately what makes a very successful public space is, is two key factors. One, that is deeply rooted in the city, and two, that it directly responds to its community. And what I mean by that is when we look at public spaces, they're intended to be places that blend in with the city they're in. They provide a space of respite, a place of community, a place of activity for that city. So they really need to be inspired and rooted in that city. What does the city need? What is its climate? Is it one that has seasons and you design a space that responds to those seasons? Or is it one like Miami that is tropical and very hot and you need to be very aware of making the space comfortable? How do you introduce planting and materials that are endemic to the area so the space feels like it belongs? And how do you also pull out the culture of the community to create activities and types of environments that people will actually use, that they're drawn to? I never forget um, when I was studying architecture in Puerto Rico, um, there was a group of exchange students that came to present their projects. And, you know, Puerto Rico is very insular. You don't actually interact with a lot of people. And these students were coming from far away, presenting designs they had created for Puerto Rico. And a lot of the designs had these giant lawns on them. And I just looked at them student to student. And I said, have you looked around? Nobody here sits on a lawn. It's full of fire ants. So it was, it's, it's that um, understanding of how a public space really fits with the culture and the community that surrounds it that really makes it very successful because ultimately a public space is for those people. We design them, we curate them, but it is for those people that will be using them. So understanding what are their needs and how they best engage with those spaces is what ultimately makes them very successful. 
Mm, yeah, I think you're what you're talking about is a connection to place. Um, and I think that uh, and an understanding of place and the development of public space, which um, I would say is is in fact vital. Um, it also makes me feel that in cities, especially young cities like Miami, that are growing so, so quickly and oftentimes um, has many development pressures. And quite frankly, sometimes doesn't um, build for longevity. I think the public realm um, has a heightened, uh, uh, let's say opportunity, but also responsibility to build itself in a way that will stand the test of time. Um, and uh, I hope that your visions for the underline will, will be able to do that for the city. But um, when setting out to design the underline, uh, I was curious if the firm had any references of other great public spaces, either from your own work or, you know, maybe more universal examples that you drew from for inspiration. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the exciting parts about the underline, and I'm going to describe it a little bit more in detail for the public because we don't have uh, visuals here. You know, the the underline is a is a ten mile long corridor um, that sits underneath an elevated active train track. Um, it is uh, it has very limited uh, width. It ranges between seventy feet and one hundred and fifty feet. So um, for the most part, it's a linear park, but it is bound to the sky by this elevated train, which presents a number of challenges. So when setting out to design the project, one, we had to fully understand its challenges and find design solutions that would overcome this. So we did look at a variety of different um, projects, um, all of which from different lengths. First, thinking about what a linear park means, we looked um, at our own design of the Highline in New York City, which is a project that we have been working on uh, for now 20 years. Um, the High Line, for those that are not familiar with it, is a mile and a half long elevated park built over an abandoned rail track. And similar to the Underline, um, basically it's a linear park. So understanding uh, the design process that it took to make this uh, park into a public space allowed us to basically set out to develop a series of key elements and features for the Underline that will bring cohesion to the length of the project while also carving out variety, because as you're moving through a very long space, if it all looks the same, it's less engaging, right? So that experience of designing the high line really allowed us to understand how we can create this um, variety and moments of pause and, and episodes along the 10 miles of the Fisher Underline. But the big difference here is that the high line is a promenade, it's elevated, and it actually does not permit bikes at all. And the Underline in turn, is first and foremost a transportation corridor that has a bike trail dedicated, you know, only for bikes, obviously, right? So the Highline didn't really give us a lot of cues in that direction. So at the time, we started looking at innovative bike corridors across the U.S. that really prioritize safety and cycling above cars or other elements within the city. And in particular, when we started designing the framework plan in 2015, Portland in Oregon actually had begun pioneering a large amount of new designated bicycle trails along the city itself, along the very urban core of the city. So we really looked to, to them to understand what were the additional um, elements that were implementing to these trails and how they were being very innovative in ways to introduce 
key um, features that will improve bike and pedestrian safety while still meeting all of the US regulations that we need to meet for a bicycle uh, trail. Lastly, you know, the High Line addressed the linearity, a linear park, Portland addressed the bicycle facility. But again, we had a, a third challenge, which has been under an active train track. And this was perhaps the most difficult challenge to overcome, because while we look around the world, there are, in fact, a lot of projects that are reclaiming spaces underneath elevated infrastructure. The Toronto Bentway, for example, um, is one in, in um, Toronto um, that creates a linear park underneath an active um, highway. And there's a number of other smaller spaces, for example, in Australia that do so in a similar way. But all of these projects dealt with highways, not train um, active train tracks. So while we drew a lot of inspiration from them, we really also had to pull together all of these uh, key learning opportunities into this unique project that actually required a significant amount of creativity to be able to make it work. We needed to sit down with uh, the transit department and understand what we needed to do to create a public space that still allowed the trains to operate um, effectively above, that we were not basically um, encroaching into their operations and that we were allowing them um, to inspect the structure in the way they needed while still creating a public space. Um, so in a way, while again, all of these projects gave us a lot of um, cues and lessons learned, it was putting this together in a creative way while working very hand in hand uh, with the transit department that allowed us to create uh, what the underline is today. Yeah, thank you for that answer. I think you gave a lot of great examples. I, as I was listening to you uh, respond, I was also thinking of one that I encountered in Tokyo. Um, I was always struck by Tokyo's ability to build underneath its train or, or elevated uh, metro lines. Um, and in a way, what in doing so, what it did is that these uh, lines in the city were no longer dividers, in fact, but they were able to connect underneath to stitch the city back together, um, which I think I, I think the underline is also going to afford us. And I think you also um, highlighted that it isn't just about uh, public space in the sense of a great linear park, but it's also about introducing alternate means of transport in the city. And I think that's so important because oftentimes you hear that the solutions for traffic are just the construction of larger roads, certainly in America. This is, I think, still sometimes the case. But given that we have an international audience of listeners, I think it's so important to underscore that that is never the solution uh, to transportation in the city. In fact, the roads get larger and they just get more filled with cars. Really, the key, at least from my perspective, is to be able to offer alternative means of transportation so that you could walk if you want to walk, you can bike if you want to bike, or you can ride the train or you could drive your car. So I think that the underline is going to be able to um, do both of those. Um, so thank you for that answer. I don't know, Meg, if you would have any um, additional thoughts that you might like to share about um, some of the inspirations um, that you might have come across in your travels throughout the globe. The High Line. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just, I ended up years ago, we were talking about my father earlier. Um, my, my, my kids have lived in New York, so I visited the High Line in every season. Um, but there was one where my we, my family was staying on the um, on the Lower East Side and decided to walk to the High Line in about ten degree weather, 
And by the time we got there, our faces were frozen, but it was, and there was, there were still people there. And, and that, that's sort of the magic, I think, of, of these spaces is what, how people decide to use them, you know, because of how you planned them. And, but they also have these, these very creative ways of experiencing the city. So pre-construction for the underline, we see people like hanging swings illegally from the metro rail. So it's almost like begging, please come. We ha- we want to use it in that sort of pent up demand. I do have an issue with the term alternative transportation because we did walk and bike before we drove. It just shows how powerful um, the introduction of the car is and how it's changed our mobility. I agree, Carrie, it is so counterintuitive that the more roads we build, the more traffic we have. And, you know, Miami is in, we are ground zero for climate change. And I think what we're trying to do is create stewards for the environment. And I know we're going to talk later about the exciting exciting plans for, for landscaping. And one of the things that I really am excited about the project is you have transportation, you have nature, and you have community and everything that fits under that classification of community. So you have a hybrid space that do, is doing many things. Well, I think that that's a great way to transition. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to continue to speak with Meg Daly and Isabel Castilla on the Underline Project and really the transformative power of public space in the design of cities. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. 
I'm continuing my conversation with Meg Daly and Isabel Castilla on the Underline Project, um, the public space project in Miami that is really uh, transforming the design of the city and the citizens' relationship to transportation um, and nature. And before the break, we were just getting into the description of the Underline Project. And I think, Isabel, you pointed out that it wasn't only about a linear park, but it was also about a transportation corridor um, and certainly a place for gathering the community. And so I'd like to delve into the topic of landscape in the creation of a linear park. You know, given the constraints of the site that you mentioned earlier, um, can you describe uh, the role of landscape in the project, uh, maybe generally, and then we can get into some specifics? Sure, absolutely. And this is one of the topics that we're the most passionate about with this project, just because while it does have a lot of challenges and constraints, it has an amazing opportunity. And it is that the underline is a 10 mile long, almost uninterrupted corridor. Development has basically established itself alongside the 10 miles of the underline, leaving this completely open space. So when we set out to design the project, in addition to creating a multimodal corridor and a space to the community, we also came up with the idea and the goal to turn the underline into an urban ecological corridor. Again, taking advantage of this very vast space that crosses so many different municipalities that was completely open for us to develop and reimagine from an ecological perspective. So the site itself uses 100% either South Florida native or adaptive species. And this is, uh, we developed this for a particular uh, series of reasons. First and foremost, you cannot maintain in a very careful and manicured way 10 miles of project. You need to deal with species that are adapted to the site, that inhabited that site originally, and that are able to survive on their own. So the various planting pilots that we um, have selected for the underline are inspired in the historic plant communities of the area. Because these are naturally occurring, again, so they minimize maintenance, they are very um, adaptable to their unique conditions of the site. These include soils that are very dominated by limestone, so they're not as nutrient-rich as you may find in other parts of the country. Um, Miami, as a city, gets very heavy rains, but also very prolonged periods uh, of, of drought. So they also need to be plants that do very well with wet feet, as we call it, but also um, survive well where there isn't a lot of rain. And, and to point out to our listeners, the underline does not use irrigation. We depend 100% on the collection of rainwater to support the planting. We also need plants that can deal well with extreme heat. We are in a tropical climate and also that can survive tropical storms trees and palms that actually are able to bend with the winds and not snap like introduced species do. So in a way that need to be very practical actually led to what we think is one of the most exciting parts, which is this idea of creating a new ecological corridor rooted in South Florida native communities. So what are these communities? We have a large number because again, the corridor crosses a variety of different urban contexts, some that are more exposed to sun, some that are shadier, some that are wider, some that are narrower. So we selected communities that physically respond to these different uh, conditions. We have um, the Pine Rocklands, which is basically the planting community that originally um, lived in this area before development back in many, many, many centuries ago. And this is mostly characterized by slash pines, which grow very tall and narrow. 
and Sapo Meadows, which are basically the understory that um, lives underneath this very lofted type of um, canopy species. We also in are introducing hardwood hammocks, which are mostly characterized by the presence of live oaks, very broad and majestic trees that provide quite a lot of shade, very needed uh, for the project. We also are introducing what we have themed the Ulite Gardens. And these are gardens composed of saxatile vegetation that is accustomed to growing in soils that are mostly composed of coral rock. Ulite is the way, uh, the name for that natural coral rock um, uh, that, that lives in Miami. An interesting story is that the, the underline is built over the coral rock ridge of the Miami area. Because before the elevated metro rail was built, this used to be the main train line, ad grade train line that connected Miami to the Florida Keys. And it was built over this coral rock ridge because it was the most sound topography to build this train. So we are now building over <laughs> this ridge itself. And again, that um, forces us to select species that can do very well in this kind of um, soil that's mostly composed, again, of coral rock. Um, this includes a lot of beautiful species, for example, the gumbo limbo tree, as well as native palms, which really create a very unique environment against other more, let's say, um, traditional types of gardens around the area. Also, we are peppering the corridor with several concentrations of butterfly gardens that use native flowering and pollinator species that attract birds and butterflies. And the particular inspiration behind this was that when we were researching um, planting opportunities for the site, we came across the fact that the monarch, the monarch butterfly migration corridor naturally crosses the Miami area. So we thought, wouldn't it be great to add butterfly gardens that provide um, further opportunities of pause to this uh, monarch but butterfly migration? Um, but these gardens in turn have also attracted quite a number of different endemic species. And one very interesting result and, and surprise that we wanna share with the audience is that shortly after uh, planting the butterfly gardens at Brickle, which is our first phase that has been built, we spotted the Atala butterfly, which is an endemic species of South Florida that is nearly extinct, but is very attractive to this native plant called the Kunti, and because we planted a lot of kunti, because we love kunti, this butterfly actually came back to the very urban Miami area of Brickell and can be now seen flying through the gardens of the underline. So for us, you know, thinking about vegetation in both how it responds to the climatic conditions, but also attracts new um, habitat is really important, specifically in an urban context. And there's a story I want to share because it's one of my um, favorite stories about the underline. While we were finishing construction on Brickle, um, and Brickle, for those that are not familiar with it, is a is the densest part of the city. It's where you have all the high rises, all the condos, all the um, commercial buildings. Um, the area started getting flocked by butterflies, and neighbors of the area started uh, speculating. Did the underline buy a bunch of butterflies and just release them on the project for effect? <laughs> we said, absolutely not. The butterflies naturally migrated to the underline because we planted the right species that attracted um, that attracted them. And that is in fact a true statement of what it means to create an ecological corridor that very carefully considers native plantings. 
Um, a shout out to uh, Fairchild Tropical Garden, who was a very strong collaborator and basically helped us develop these native planting palettes that again have now proven to be very successful at Brickell. But I also wanna speak about what we're planning for the third phase of the underline, because again, inspired by the success that we've had so far on the build phases, we wanna expand even more. We have even more hunger to create innovative planting techniques that really expand that idea of an ecological corridor. And one of the things that we're the most excited about is that on the third phase, we're introducing what we're calling a microforest. And a microforest is basically um, a pioneering afforestation method developed by this Japanese botanist called Akira Miyawaki. And basically what it does is, um, and as the name suggests, it basically plants a really tiny forest in the middle of an urban area. And this is a technique that um, we're pioneering in Miami, but it's actually been used recently quite a lot across the world, for example, in India, to basically um, afforest um, urban areas that may have lost a large part of their um, forest mass through development. And what this, um, how this works is basically you can have a very small area, around 200 square feet of land, and this is critical for us because we don't have a lot of space. And within this area, we plant a lot of very small um, trees, very, very tiny baby trees. Particularly for the underline, we're planting hardwood hammock species, which again, were the native plantings of the area. And we're planting them very tight. And by being so small and tight, they will basically grow significantly larger because they protect each other, but they will also provide habitat for a wide variety of pollinators, animals, and fungi that all together create this mini ecosystem that again, because ecosystems are intended to work all together, um, allow it to grow more effectively and more healthily. So we're very excited about the idea of implementing this and we're working again very closely with Fairchild Tropical Garden to refine the species and to make sure that these are successful. But the other great benefits that this brings to the community is that number one, it minimizes maintenance, which is also very important. But two, it becomes a true community asset because it allows us to plant a baby forest that the local community is going to see growing before their eyes. And when we presented this uh, during our community engagement sessions, people were so excited. Some people came to us and said, oh my God, does that mean that my five-year-old is going to remember when this was first planted and when they have their own kids, they're going to point out to their kids and say, I saw that forest grow right next to my house. So for us, this is kind of one of the most exciting parts of the project. How can we make an urban ecological corridor, a space that performs very well with climate, that um, makes the site more resilient, that makes the city more resilient, but that also is fully embraced by the community as something they contributed to and they can see grow right before their eyes. Well, you know, your answer, Isabel, um, was, I think, a beautiful description of the landscape and your enthusiasm is palpable. And what I loved about hearing you describe it is that it's quite technical. As a landscape architect, you have to have great technical abilities to be able to tap into these native species that you were describing earlier. But I think you do that while you balance the ultimate desire, which is really for pleasure and the connection to nature. And by doing so, the community connects to its own history and I think builds a greater sense of sensitivity uh, to place, uh, which allows us to care for community. 
And so thank you for that answer. And I think it's a good segue perhaps to asking Meg uh, a couple of questions about how this um, beautiful backdrop of landscape creates a environment for the community and somehow your work in in uh, programming this space. I wonder if you could share a bit about some of the most exciting programming opportunities that you might be currently working on for uh, the project. I also want to add that a recent article said that connecting with nature in the urban context, you'll live two and a half years longer. So I'm all in on that. So <laughs> thanks for almost 500,000 native plants and trees coming to the underline. Um, the, you know, I think that one of the hallmarks of this project is that we listen first. And there were, before the master plan uh, was created and before field operations ever put pen to paper, there was so much listening and, and data collection. And one of the things that we, on top of that saying, let's design the underline, we also did that with programming. And we had a series called Program Your Park. And I think every great idea that we have for programs on the underline have come from the community. Um, and so if you visit the underline today and the first half mile is open in Brickell, um, 365 days in the year, we program two thirds of them. Um, so we have consistent health and wellness programs, which started with yoga, which is now also Zumba and something called CinderFit, which was developed here locally by an entrepreneur using cinder blocks for exercise classes. Um, and then we brought in cultural programs um, in partnership with organizations like Miami City Ballet, New World Symphony, um, and then also now Miami Children's Museum. We're going to collaborate with Frost Museum. And so these, I think these collaborations have helped us to do more with less because as a nonprofit, we have limited resources and limited funds. And that's what I think is really cool about this project is we sort of brought this program your park palette and, and priorities from the community on the types of programs they wanted, health and wellness, culture, also innovation, food and beverage. And I don't wanna leave out art because art and technically is a program and that's in, in huge demand, um, wakes up our eyes and ears. So um, we talked about nature, and the the beauty of the underline through nature, but it also needs to be maintained. Uh, we have a regular core of volunteers who come out once a month and we have uh, group Saturdays are called day in the dirt. We provide the gloves, people provide the manpower and they weed, they mulch, they replant and people leave dirty and happy. And they've had a great time um, plant um, gardening and replanting. So how does that become 10 miles? So can you imagine driving, we haven't talked about the underline directly, uh, is directly adjacent to a major arterial, arterial road called US-1. And so if you have hundreds of volunteers on a given day out there with an underline t-shirt, gardening and pruning and planting, people say, wow, nature can be um, anywhere and it can work anywhere, even in these harsh conditions. Uh, the other one of the programs I love that the community has brought to um, um, our, our program is we got a grant where we could provide the space for free, which includes our maintenance, our security, our staff. And we've had groups like Oh Miami, uh, which is a local poetry group, Bookleggers, which got a grant from somewhere else. And they've done every everything from dance 
to visual arts, to bringing out um, these uh, portable libraries that people get to take books away for free. Uh, we have an ice cream social uh, this Saturday, which is someone else's programming. And then the girls sat Girl Scouts saw that and they said, can we provide the cookie toppings? So you can see sort of this um, exponential approach to you provide the platform and people provide the great ideas. And that's one of the things that we've learned is our, our partners are not only Miami-Dade County, the state, the federal government, DOT, and our philanthropic partners, but the community that can bring these brilliant ideas for programs um, to place. Um, so back to Day in the Dirt, um, I think that one of the things that this listening first model um, translates into also, and, and I just have to give kudos to field operations for the way that they run a public meeting. Um, there's multilingual, um, no, no idea is a bad idea. Every idea is a great idea. So at our, our last series of public meetings, um, we had literally groups of cheerleaders for pickleball and the other side of the room groups of cheerleaders who were a lot of them were high schoolers around skate parks and then sort of with that joyful note noise and public meetings for anyone around the world i don't care where you live a public meeting can be fraught these were so joyous and so people felt like they were championing for something instead of resisting against something and so that brought us another problem all these great ideas were not potentially funded. Uh, so a recent state appropriation um, funded some of those um, new ideas. Pickleball was not around when we started our master plan. So we've had to be very adaptable. Um, the last thing I wanna add is um, priorities. Um, one of the things that has really surprised me about the, this project is the consistency of the community's priorities. Safety was always first and is always first. Second is nature and third is everything else which I would roll up into community. So why is safety the first priority for Miamians? I think we talked about this as a city um, that was built around the car, typical of a 1950s approach to city building. And what that created is, a, a, I mean, a disaster waiting to happen if you wanna get back on a bike or a walk. And so people are very excited that they have this off-road off condi condition for multimodal transportation, which let me translate that too. I have choices. I can walk, I can bike, I can scoot, I can skate, and I can also have a car alongside me and I can take Metro Rail above. Yes, I think actually in listening to you describe it, Meg, um, I believe, although knowing you, maybe you've got another amazing project uh, underneath your sleeve, but I believe that this will likely be your greatest professional uh, legacy. And in listening to um, both you and Isabel describe it, I think it attests to a strong vision that you spoke of earlier, um, which is necessary to execute any type of large-scale public work, but also your ability to be adaptable and transformative. And I think in time, that's what the underline will be for the city. It will be a, the city's linear park uh, and the community across time will transform it and make it their own. So I, for one, am grateful um, for the work that you both have done on this project. And as we come towards the end of the conversation, I just want to make sure, and I would love to hear Isabel um, perhaps speak about some of your work outside of the underline as you're leading a number of very important projects in New York and elsewhere. I wonder if you could... Um, 
maybe highlight a project or two that you're currently working on outside of South Florida? Sure. So um, a project that I'm currently working on, or perhaps just finished working on, I guess, is the Highline Moynihan Connector, which is uh, two bridges that we literally just opened to the public two weeks ago. And um, very similar to the Highline, this project um, had two key goals. One, to to uh, provide an alternative mode of transportation to pedestrians across New York City in a neighborhood that... um, not only had very weak pedestrian connections, but very difficult and dangerous roadways to cross, while at the same time creating a new opportunity for a new ecological connector with native plantings. Um, So in a very compressed footprint, um, the Highline Moynihan connector is only 600 feet long, as opposed to the underline, which is 10 miles. Um, It continues to carry similar goals. And Um, The way the project, just to describe it a little bit, is basically, like I mentioned, two bridges. They connect the uh, historic portion of the High Line, which was built over um, an abandoned rail uh, train track, to a public plaza um, that connects directly to the new Moynihan train station. It's a new train station New York State has invested quite a lot lot of money on to create better connections across the city to New Jersey, Connecticut, um, and to the Northeast at large. But the the main issue with this neighborhood was that these two great public spaces, the train station and the High Line, were disconnected by Dyer Avenue, which those that live in New York will know is the entry to the Lincoln Tunnel, which is one of the few areas where you can exit um, New York City and it has the most awful traffic. So the idea behind this project was to create two pedestrian bridges that basically hover over uh, Dyer Avenue one um, a timber bridge and another one a planted bridge and the planted bridge the reason i'm very excited to present that is that it is planted with all native plants from new york state and it creates basically this extension of the ecological corridor of the high line over one of the most horrible roadways in new york city again bringing in these thematics that we've been talking about about connectivity and ecology uh, right in very dense urban city centers Thank you, Isabel. And since we're at the last two minutes or so, I'm just going to give each of you a chance to answer. What is your favorite city, Meg, and why? Well, I got to say Miami uh, because I live here, um, but I whisper my favorite city is London uh, because (laughs) you opened with Ruskin and I just feel that that is one of those places that prioritized prioritize, um, public parks and, and public spaces. Um, and I think it just is, just has magic whenever I go there. Good answers. And what about you, Isabel? What is your favorite city and why? Well, ever since I've been a little kid, I've always been drawn to Barcelona. I have family there, had the opportunity to go there many times. And I would say Barcelona because of its public spaces largely had a large influence in me becoming a landscape architect. However, I would say that since working on my in Miami for the past 10 plus years, I have also fallen in love with Miami and we love the opportunity to spend a lot more time there. It just has great energy, great climate, great culture and people. And it's just such a vibrant um, city that I love to be part of uh, forming into the near future. 
Well, I loved your answer. Both London and Barcelona are far older cities that have great lessons to teach Miami, which is really a young contemporary city that's still building itself. So thank you both for your work as designers, as activists, as community leaders. Um, I, for one, greatly enjoyed speaking to you. Um, for our guests and our listeners, um, please tune in next week um, and follow us on uh, the On Cities podcast on Instagram. And you can listen to all previous episodes on Spotify, Apple iTunes iTunes or anywhere where you get your podcasts. Thank you again. And we will see everyone next week. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 